Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 257, recorded January 7th, 2017. So today we're doing manga, manga, however you pronounce it. The Japanese manga. artwork of Star Trek. Yeah. This is, I believe, the... Uh, is it the second or third uh, original series book that they did? Yeah, I uh, I don't know. I mean, in order or just total, they did three. Uh, though they did three total, and then they did one Next Generation. So I don't right. know which of the books this is. But anyways, we're doing the first three stories of the book called Kakani Shinko. <laughs> Great names. Yeah, so and it. I tried to figure out what that meant, but I couldn't find it. Oh. Yeah, we were able to look up the one for Next Gen. What was it? Uh, Adventurous Spirit or something is what I translated to. But yeah, we don't know what Kakan Nishinku is. Oh, well. So, all by Tokyo Pop. We did three. And were there five stories? Uh, there's five stories. So okay. We, we did not do The Trial and Suicide Note. We'll have to do that at another time. But... Uh... We did. Uh, uh, okay. We did the trial, right? Oh, the trial. No, we did the trial. Uh, okay. So today we're going to do Cura T. Ipsum, mm-hmm. the trial, and communications breakdown. Right. So we that means that we have left suicide note and forging alliances and scan gate. So there might be three more. Oh wow, six. Okay. Value packed book. Right. So. I was kind of excited that the first one we're going to do was written by Wheel Wheaton. <laughs> exactly. Wheaton. Family Guy reference there. Yeah. I mean, he's done other ones. Well, at least one other one for the manga. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and here he is with another one, which is my favorite of the three. So uh, Out of the three we're doing today, yes, it's my favorite as well. Exactly. But it doesn't have a lot of competition either. Because the other, because the other two aren't—they're okay, but they're not that good. Right. I don't think. Yeah. So this is the uh, this this book was the second of the uh, the manga series that uh, Tokyo Pop did. Okay. Cool. So, all right. Well, do you want to just uh, jump straight into it, Ken? Let's do it, man. So, uh, as I said, this one was written by Will Wheaton, and I get the pleasure of doing the synopsis. All right, so the story was by Will Wheaton, the pencils and inks by E.J. Su, tones by Chow Han Lam. All right, so the cover art is by Bethany Gurkowski, and the book editor is Louis Reyes. All right, so the cover shows Ahura up front, and she seems to be fiddling with the earpiece in her left ear. Uh, Behind her, we see Kirk in the command chair with McCoy and Spock standing behind him. And then flying overhead, we see the USS Enterprise. So the story starts with a Dr. Hackard. He's just completed tinkering with the Enterprise's engines, and they're ready for a test flight. 
With Kirk's command, the engines are brought online, and the Enterprise streaks away faster than ever. Almost immediately, there's an explosion that knocks out the power of the ship and kills several people, including the great Dr. Hackard. The Enterprise is now stranded in unknown space, very close to the neutral zone, in badly need of dilithium crystals. They scan a nearby primitive planet, and they find the needed material. Kirk orders an away team consisting of himself, Spock, Scotty, a young man named Lieutenant Arby, and a few of Scotty's red shirts. Upon landing, scans indicate that there is a gas on the planet that would cause dramatic consequences if the phasers were fired. This means that Scotty and his boys will be using pickaxes to get to those crystals. Scotty and his men leave to get started, and the rest are soon ambushed by men accusing the Federation of being Zoran spies. They attack with projectile pistols and grenades. Arby is hit in the shoulder with a slug, and in a, de and in a desperate situation to try to save his life, he pulls out his phaser and fires. The explosion that ensues dissolves the young man into a charred skeleton. Shortly after, the dust settles, and we find that Spock is badly injured. They are then approached by the group of previous attackers, who are all calm now. These guys claim that they are Kalins, and that they thought that the Federation was Zorons. But now they're offering some help. They take the Federation crew to their village, and Spock is diagnosed with something called the Plague. It seems that years ago, the plague swept through the planet, causing the friendly Zarans and Kalins to go to war over the only known cure, a moss that they call Suja. There is just not enough of the moss for the whole planet to be cured, so the two sides start fighting over it. Spock is soon stabilized, but the Kalins say that they do not have enough moss to fully cure him. Back on the Enterprise, Sulu is informed that a Romulan scout force is close by, and with the Enterprise defenseless, they will be useless in a fight. Sulu has been given orders to leave the captain behind at the first hint that the Romulans are approaching. And we'll let you in on a little spoiler. The Romulans never do, and this side story never goes anywhere. Meanwhile, Scotty contacts the captain to let him know that his men are having a tough time digging for the crystals due to all this blasted moss. Kirk knows that they have just found the moss that will not only save Spock, but also the Kalins and Zorons. Before he can tell anybody of the good news, he is cornered by a man called General Gomi, who demands that he hands over his phaser since he has heard about the destructive power of the malfunctioning weapons. Kirk refuses. A fight ensues, and Kirk overloads his weapon and throws the phaser high into the air, high enough so that when it explodes, it's nothing more than a harmless firework. Scotty and his men then arrive with huge armfuls of the moss. With the sudden realization and a change in heart, the general knows that this is enough moss to not only cure his people, but the Zorans themselves. He says that they will share it so that they can bring peace back to the warring peoples. Later, once Spock has regained consciousness, they leave. Kirk and the young woman doctor share a hug, and she gives him a necklace that shows two hands holding a flower. The Enterprise then races off to another unknown adventure. How exciting. So, 
We don't actually see her give Kirk the pendant, I don't think. But at the very end, we see Kirk holding it. Um, maybe? Okay, yeah. Because at the end, when Kirk has it in his hand, it's like, I think it's like the last panel. And it's right. like, what? Where that? Where'd that come from? It's like, where? And then I went back in the story until, so then I saw that she had a pendant like that. So I was like, oh, well, how nice. So right. did that actually mean that Kirk is kind of a healer of her people's situation, her and, and the other people's? Or is it just that she dug the cut of his jib? I don't know. <laughs> you're I mean, you're looking it... into a much deeper explanation. I just thought she liked him because, uh, you know, he's Kirk. But, uh, but yeah, your explanation <laughs> is actually better. <laughs> Yeah, because I was looking at it like, oh, yeah, Kirk strikes again. All right. Getting jewelry from uh, from lovely uh, alien women. Okay. Right. Well, here's what I was thinking when, when I read that. I was like, how many planets has he gone to, gotten friendly with a certain person, if you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And then they give him a, some sort of memento jewelry or something, and then he leaves, and they think, oh – He's always going to have this necklace or whatever to remind him of me. Mm -hmm. And then I was thinking, and then Kirk's in his quarters, and he opens a box just full of crap, and he just (laughs) throws it in there like, there's another. (laughs) And then when the Enterprise crashes, uh, then it's all gone. Right. And because think about all the stuff that's probably, I mean, they live on the ship, so think of how many times uh, they've lost mementos. Um, yeah, yeah, he's probably got a whole box full of it. And it's not, and it's probably not nicely uh, arrayed or anything, it's just a pile. It's just a plain box just full of it. It's all tangled and stuff. All the necklaces and things. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the way I picture it. And then it, it, your explanation, you know, I love your explanation, but it, because it's so much better than mine, because yours uh, <laughs> is like all sweet and stuff, where he's the healer of their people. Uh-huh. And, and I'm thinking some, you know, that she's just one of many in a, in a box. So, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yours is so much better. Okay, well. Okay, so the title, Cura, Cura Te Ipsum. Some folks may recognize that. I didn't really. I had no idea what it was. But it's the Latin expression, which means cure yourself. Or I guess it's gone further than that, and they, like, physician heal thyself. Right. And of course, it was okay. So it was uh, said by Jesus to his disciple Luke in Luke four twenty three, which was interesting. He um, spoke Latin. Who knew? <laughs> exactly. Um, who was himself a healer or physician? Right. Okay. So there's some medical stuff going on here. Who's healing thyself? I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to. I guess you can loosely tie the title to what happened in the story, but when you look at it closely, I just wasn't 100% sure who was the physician that was healing themselves. Um, I think it was uh, the general, actually. Oh, the general. Because think about it. He goes from, I want these weapons so that I can... Wipe out the other guys. Yeah, I can just basically lob them as super grenades and destroy them all in one shot. Uh Uh-huh. And then almost immediately, once he sees that there's all that moss, he goes against everybody else's wishes because he says... We'll share this with the Zorons, and they're like, "Hell no, we're not." <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's the sh- it's the sharing with the Zorans, 
which is uh, is amazing. Right. And, and by the way, Scotty and company just come upon these this this big this big thatch, the a mega grouping of this moss or whatever, and nobody else found that. I mean, if it was anyway, I mean, they they, they seem to have some technology. Um, right, but they don't these seem to people. have. They don't seem to have flying cars and stuff. So you, would yeah. Think I mean, as, as soon as he found out about the moss, he should have asked Sulu to scan the area to find any of that moss. Yeah, right? yeah. Then, then he could have cured him right then. Oh, hey, you know, a hundred miles this way, there's enough moss to save exactly. Everybody. But they never, of course, that would make too. That would make the short the story too short. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly, or or even use tricorders, uh, but but better that better to have the uh, ship because that can see more land, um, and, and that's the thing. So these guys maybe don't have satellite technology, right? Because yeah, I, if I it was that, yeah, because if it was that important to them, they would figure out a way how to detect it and get launch a satellite. But anyway, so it it, it seems like it's not that far away from one of their cities. So <laughs> Scotty and them walked. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Anyway, no, no, that part was a little. Eh, that seems convenient. <laughs> Very convenient. Why did nobody check over this ridge? Huh. Yeah, <laughs> walking distance. But exactly, man, people could be out walking their dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. that part and uh, the whole Sulu and the Romulans thing. Yeah, uh, just like wasted pages. It is. I mean, and by the way, without the dilithium crystals, they don't have warp power. So all they have is uh, impulse, which is slow. So even if the Romulans came, <laughs> and then the Enterprise started going at impulse power, it's like where they they're going to be caught up in seconds by the Romulans, and they're going to blast them to, to bits. So even leaving, that's no solution. Right. Well, I mean, that's that's the whole thing with anytime they do the saucer section mumbo jumbo same same argument there. I mean, at at yeah, less yeah. than at less than the speed of light, you're not going to get away from really anything. Yeah, exactly. Right. 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 Yeah, even escape pods, you know, they're like, "Oh, get into the little escape pod." Really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're not going anywhere. Well, but that's why in the reboot movie they had to have it, so they had shuttles. With warp sleds? Well, it, they, 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 were, they were very far away from any help. So I think shuttles, you can last longer and move at least further um, than with these, than these pods. Right. I mean, quite frankly, some of the ones which I thought were really cool in Beyond, uh, they were really looked like they were just designed to you know, get to the... Hopefully you're near a planet, right? Because well, you're not going like, to go very far. Yeah, they look like the pods from um, first. No, not first contact. Which one had all the Enterprise E shooting off all the escape pods? It was the first contact, wasn't it? Uh, first contact did have a lot of the crew going off in in pods, right? I, you, right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And or well, generations too. When the no. No, I think no, it probably was. They just crashed. They just crashed. <laughs> Everybody get on the saucer section. We're going down. Right. Okay, yeah. But um, 
I thought at least the ones that Kirk were in. So it seems like like Kirk and Chekhov and stuff and beyond were in one type of pod. And then like Spock and the other people were in bigger pods. But the ones that uh, Chekhov and, and Kirk were in and beyond uh, reminded me of some of those things like the original, ver- you know, like uh, Halo uh, ODSTs. Oh, there's the little drop pods. The little drop pods that get you down to the planet, and then you you pop out and do your worst. Right. So anyway, getting back to this. With no war power, you know, you can talk about Sulu taking the ship away, you know, leave us behind. And by the way, it's not just Kirk. It's it's Spock and, and McCoy, too. But... It doesn't help anything once you really think about it, except for maybe like uh, 20 minutes until they catch up to you immediately. Right. Right. Like I said, and it doesn't go anywhere. It's not – it's like it's a – they needed a filler page or so, and so they just stuck this in there. Well, and also just increase the uh, sense of urgency on getting those dilithium crystals. Right. Yeah. Artificial. So, uh, what isn't artificial is what happens to poor old Darby. The guy who gets crispied. Oh, the kid? Yeah. Oh. Well, oh, okay. So, he's the one that was getting shot at, right? Yeah, he took a slug to his shoulder, which was a pretty interesting page. I mean, it shows yeah. like a big chunk of his shoulder gone. Yeah. And then, you know, he grabs his phaser and blows up. But that picture of him blowing up, I mean, it shows his kind of graphic charred, charred skeleton and stuff. I was like, that's pretty graphic for a Star Trek comic. Exactly. Well, you know, I think um, obviously they did make this just for kids, even though all the characters are drawn like children, especially Sulu. There are some panels where Sulu looks twelve years old. But I mean, story-wise, they seem to be. I mean, they seem to realize, hey, this is for you know, this is a, this is an adult story too, right? So uh, they're okay with getting a little bit of a messiness, right? Which I like. No, overall, I really enjoyed this story. I thought it was good. Um, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't trying to be too funny, and it wasn't trying to. Uh, you know, it actually told a story that made sense. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I really had high hopes for the rest of the book based on the first story. Right. And like you said, this this of the three that we read is, to me, the best one, unfortunately. <laughs> By a fair amount. Right. Okay, so besides the uh, guy blowing up and the shoulder stuff, what you and the, everybody drawn like children. Well, not everybody, but mostly people. These are not 30-year-old people they're drawing. Um, <laughs> What, what do you what do you think about the artwork? Oh, it's typical Japanese anime type style, so I like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I do too. And especially when what Arby was his name when mm-hmm. he when he there's this one panel in the middle of the page where he's got his uh, his phaser drawn, and it's a it's a great close up of the phaser, and then going back to him and he's like really like oh, I'm gonna get you. Um, that's really a cool panel. Do you know which one right. I'm talking about? Yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I yeah, like right, that. Right, right when Kirk says, "Arby, no." Exactly. Don't fu-. <laughs> yeah, Fry. 
<laughs> Foo. Boom. No. no, I liked it. I thought Arby looked a lot like uh, you know, Speed Racer or whatever. Oh, he, he yeah. Reminded, he, uh, maybe it's not Speed Racer. He reminds me of some some anime that I used to watch when I was a kid. Yeah. He had that same hair. Maybe Star Blazers or something. Yeah. Uh, Battle of the Planets, whatever it was called here. Um, no, I, 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 I like the artwork all, all around. Yeah, me too. It was good. Only, again, everybody looks like children to some yeah. degree. As far as artwork goes, the only complaint I have, and it's it's a stupid complaint, is that the uh, the trucks and stuff that they're in look oh, yeah. contemporary. I know that this is supposed to be a primitive planet, and they're probably supposed to be you know where we were or are right now. Right. And we wouldn't have Floto technology and stuff like that. Floto. <laughs> you know, their cars are on wheels, and, and they look like our normal trucks, so... I get it that they're supposed to be, you know, at that point in their uh, in their design, but it just looks a little too Earth-like for uh, to buy that as an alien planet. Right. Uh, and I know uh, I know it's a stupid nitpick, so I I, yeah. I I hate to bring it up. Okay. Are you mentioning the trial by some chance? No, that does it too. But uh, no, okay. when uh, when they go to the village. And and they're in the back of the ambulance. It looks like an ambulance almost. Oh, okay. I, mean, I just okay. Okay, cool. No, you're yeah. right. The trial has more. Oh no, no, yeah. Oh yeah, that's that's. So there's one panel that actually shows the ambulance. Yeah, and it's got four wheels with rubber. Yeah, rubber tires or rubber rubber looking tires. Yeah. Okay. So I've got the same comment in the trial because they show a city, uh, a very urban kind of shot for no good reason, quite frankly. Anyway, but we'll get to that there. Yes, yes, yes. This looks uh, well. The, but you don't know how advanced these people are. I mean, they may not be much beyond the 20th century technology, right? And they may, yeah, they may be. They uh, may be like in the 50s. Who knows? I mean, because they don't even have satellites. Exactly. Days. Right. Okay. Not that we have satellites that can scan for moss. <laughs> no, I agree with that. But we do have sensing equipment that can find oil. <laughs> And other kind of things, measure things in the air. But, yeah, you're right. Looking for specific plants, I don't think we'd do that. Right. <laughs> but but if, if it was that important to the survival of our a significant portion of our society, we might figure out how to do it. Exactly. Exactly. So. So, uh, but you also got to figure out that the the plague probably took out a good portion of the population. So they're kind of in post-apocalyptic crisis mode where they might not have the resources they might have had before the plague happened and they had any need for that moss. Right. Yeah. All right. So my last thing is, uh, aside from the artwork, when Arby makes his mistake, um, my other favorite part of the story, and, and we very briefly talked about it, was was the general himself. He's not a big part of the, the story, but to me, he encapsulates, uh, you know, what's best about people, you know. At one moment, he's willing to kill to save his own people, but the minute that he gets an opportunity to cure not only his people but the people he's fighting with, that's the path he chooses. So I, I really liked that. I liked that he's not a bad person. He's not a warmonger. You know, a lot of times when they throw general on somebody's name in these books, that means they're a bad guy in there, and all they care about is killing people. But this guy, he truly wanted to save as many lives as possible. If that meant killing a few, he was willing to do it. But if he could do anything 
to save even the people that he's warring with, he would do that too, even if it was against uh, what his other his 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 people wanted. So, yeah, like I said, I, I you know even though he's only in it three or four pages, uh, that was like one of the highlights of the book for me. Sure, and 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 it's the transition. It's almost like an Anakin Skywalker transition because he's got one mindset at the beginning, which is which is very much save my own people. Let me blow up the other guys because he wants to. He wants to kill the other guys. The other right. uh, I forgot what their names are, but he wants to kill the other guys. And uh, it's through I think his daughter trying to talk to him, uh, and, and some of what she's saying that helps him to do a one eighty, which is very good that he's able to do that because that definitely was not his mindset uh, for most of the book. Right. Very good. I liked it. Uh, yeah. Um, quick, two quick things. I think the drawing of the tricorder in Dr. Hackward's hands, uh, at the beginning of the book, I thought was very good, very accurate. Love it. I love when they're accurate with the devices. Mm-hmm. And also, um, I'm glad that Wheaton was able to work in, uh, Kirk getting his shirt ripped during the fight. I thought that was great. <laughs> Cause you've got to have Kirk's shirt ripped. Right. Well, this whole story kind of reminded me at the beginning of Galaxy Quest. It's like, oh, we're going to a primitive planet to find dilithium, which was pretty much the story of Galaxy Quest, when they had to go to that primitive planet to get that beryllium sphere. (laughs) Well, that was only one of the side trips. But that, yeah, one of the the challenges for them to overcome to be able to take care of the the big bad guy, right? Right. So I was was half expecting the... uh, the primitives to be those little, those little, little guys, little guys. But that's not, that's not where Will Wheaton took it. <laughs> exactly. He doesn't want to be too derivative. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's it. Okay. All right. Shall we move on to uh, the trial? The trial. Okay. So this is the second story that we're doing today. Uh, the writer is Mike Wellman, uh, doing his first Star Trek story, and you can kind of tell. Artist is Nam Kim, uh, with Matt Dalton, A.J. Ford, B. Harvey, and Sang S. Kim. So those last people, the with people, I'm not quite sure what they did, but uh, they, they, they contributed, obviously, to the final product. Uh, and, of course, there are people that were responsible for the whole book. I will not repeat them, and I will not discover, or describe the cover, since it's the same as Donovan described. Okay, synopsis. Kirk is mysteriously kidnapped off the Enterprise. Spock logically starts looking for him on the nearest habitable world called Kos. K-O-S. McCoy and Spock beam down to find find out from the authorities that Kirk is indeed there and being held, awaiting his trial. The Kossans accuse Kirk of being a Danger to the universe. The Cossons accuse Kirk of being dangerous to them and indeed the entire universe. They say if he is found guilty, he will likely spend the rest of his life imprisoned on Kos to protect the Enterprise crew and the inhabitants of the galaxy. They allow Spock and McCoy to meet with Kirk and have a meal with him. In the dining hall, there are many other incarcerated species. Gorn, Andorian, Klingon, and more. 
Kirk and company speak to a Klingon that has been incarcerated a long time, but he continues to fight on against the oppressive, self-righteous Kossians. The day comes, and Kirk stands trial. The prosecution is light on specifics, but makes their case with general statements. 1. Many people have died where Kirk and the Enterprise explore, including members of Kirk's own crew. Under Kirk's orders, violations of the timeline have taken place on more than one occasion. Number three, and all of this collateral damage has taken place on a mission of discovery that has yielded little in the way of true discovery. Due to the expected ongoing threat that Kirk presents to Koss and indeed the galaxy, she moves to sentence Kirk to permanent incarceration on Koss. Kirk's court-appointed attorney is up next, but he proves to be pretty much useless. So being the debate captain at heart, Kirk says a few words in his own defense. He says their explorations have been, and always will be, embarked upon with the best of intentions. Every crewman he loses is a tragic loss to him, the rest of the crew, and to Starfleet. He takes full responsibility for those losses. He admits to imperfections, but also states they have helped many in their journeys also. He adds a jab about the Kossians using their policy of capturing and incarcerating people that don't fit their homebody preference as part of their way of throwing up a wall to the rest of the galaxy. They are just letting the rest of the quadrant pass them by. Kirk shocks the court by pleading guilty. McCoy thinks Kirk has lost his marbles. Spock thinks it's an intriguing defensive gambit. As expected, the jury agrees and finds Kirk guilty. However, surprisingly, the jury suspends the indefinite incarceration on costs in favor of placing Kirk into the custody of his more reasonable crewmates. If Kirk violates the terms of his parole, they can turn him over to the authorities on costs to begin his sentence on costs. Kirk is free. On his way out, he suggests the Kli- on his way out he suggests to the Klingon to plead guilty if he wants to get out of there. The Klingon says that will not happen. He will fight on. Back on the Enterprise, Spock and Kirk briefly discuss the trial, and Spock asks if he has figured out what crime he was actually accused of. Kirk responds, being human. The end. You, you, uh, for you, that was a short synopsis. It was a short synopsis. I ran out of time. <laughs> so I forced <laughs> myself into a short synopsis. But really, you know, the beginning of this had promise of the story. But when I got to the end, it was like, really? Really? They just let him go? Right. On his own recognizance in the hands of the crew? It's like, I mean, the end ruined it for me. So I really was not going to spend a lot of time to go into detail. Yeah, to, to me, this whole story just, this one was the hardest one to read. It was just like, oh, mumbo-jumbo, legal mumbo-jumbo. That didn't even make sense because they're all like, we don't recognize Federation law because Federation law is bad and we have the law. And I'm like, if you don't recognize Federation law, then why would the Federation 
acknowledge your law. And so, you know, exactly. who are you to kidnap somebody that wasn't even on your planet? Uh, you're the you're the one in the wrong the whole time. Exactly. This is kidnapping. Did you ever think that you were in the right? And and then every time they bring that up, the, you know, every time Spock or McCoy brings it up, they're like, "Are you threatening us?" And I'm like, "What? <laughs> How could you think you're right? You know, because they weren't even on that planet. They were on another planet, and somehow they were able to beam, maybe transwarp beaming. I don't know." Uh, <laughs> from far away uh, it was uh, uh it made me upset yeah and not only that they're grabbing a bunch of people i mean there's a lot of people i mean a lot of people in this mess hall at the prison i assume they're all prisoners right right there's a lot of people there how are these Cossians doing that i mean they supposedly don't leave their planet they don't want to be interacting with people do they actually have agents out in the field that's gathering all this intel or they somehow have the technology of being able to um like mirror mirror or something remote remote sensing remote reconnaissance being able to see all these things from the comfort of their own planet it's like man uh, what, Section 38 or whatever? Any spy agency would love to have their level of, apparently, surveillance. And it's like, bought out. It's like, uh, did any of those people you grabbed do anything directly to you? I mean, maybe, who knows, but come on. I doubt it. So you guys are taking it upon yourself to go out and grab all these people uh, and impose some kind of whacked judgment on them. It's just just doesn't make sense anyway no i agree with you and it was um and and the fact that you know the the defendant whatever i guess he's an attorney that's his defendant has this long scroll that he keeps reading off of uh for comedic effect i guess but it wasn't very funny to me but i mean it even has like all the times kirk slept with an alien woman and stuff like that and i'm like okay at first i thought maybe he was just getting all the information from logs or something but uh-huh. you know i'm sure kirk well didn't. yeah they yeah they, they actually they actually referred to kirk's log right but how much detail does kirk go into and how did they get kirk's log i mean they don't just publish that on a website starfleet doesn't right right <laughs> but but i'm sure he didn't leave it in his log well i banged another one <laughs> she, she gave me a necklace this time i put it in the box <laughs> exactly and you know what so what? I mean, what kind of prudish mentality do you have? I mean, uh, if you go to what, Ra- Raza? What was that pleasure planet in Next Gen? Riza. Riza, Riza. So they're very hospitable, and they, they don't go into details, but, you know, odds are there's some hanky-panky going on there on a regular basis. It's so implied. It's definitely implied. So it's like, well... So their morals are different from your morals. What makes you right? Right. Right. Anyway. No, it doesn't make sense. Uh, and to be honest, I, I – I, at the beginning, I kind of liked the whole fill out a form and go to this place, and then you get to that place, and I go, like, oh, well, you didn't do this, so you have to go to another place. You know, where, where Spock and – Oh, the bureaucracy. Yeah. yeah I, I liked that part. I thought that was funny, and I was like, okay, this part's kind of – readable <laughs> for a while yeah but then it then it just you know it, it just drops off for me and and then i didn't like how it started where like the captain's 
been kidnapped. You know, it really makes you feel like you missed a page. You know, kind of like a lot of the old shows started off that way. We're now stranded in 1950, and you're like, whoa, this must be part two. But it's not. It's just that's how that episode starts. Yeah. And so they're kind of doing the same thing here, which, which I've never liked. Yeah. I think this is the one I, I like the least. I agree. Yeah. So there's a small inking error on page 28 where McCoy's hair turns blonde like Kirk's. And by the way, this is black and white, so there's no brown. <laughs> so uh, you either have – pretty much you either have black hair or you've got, uh, you know, really blonde hair right. on these pages. So Kirk has really blonde hair. Well, it's actually just white. It's black and white. But there's one that McCoy has white hair too. I guess they just didn't fill it in with black. And here again, for such advanced people that are able to kidnap Kirk off – the Enterprise Bridge, and is able to know all these things that are going on in the galaxy. Amazing. They're driving around uh, cars with four wheels. Right. Yeah. So they've yeah. got a, a law and order kind of shot before the trial. <laughs> like right off the TV, where they're showing like a shot of the, the, the courthouse or something. And there's a whole bunch of traffic in front, but the cars look kind of, sort of, like almost 20th century. No, mm. yeah, it does. Yeah, so that was kind of odd. Yeah, not even not even 2016 Back to the Future. Uh, it's not even that advanced. Yeah, did, yeah, right. They're ground cars with right. four wheels. Which, by the way, maybe that's just the way it works well. But if you've got anti gravity, like you know, like like in Star Trek, many of the cars are like hovering. Right. <laughs> um, here's my biggest positive for the show. I I loved the alien design. They're uh, they're like a good foot and a half, maybe taller than than Spock. So uh-huh. they're very tall, very angular. Yep. Uh, their heads, they have hair, but they also have like skin folds that come arching over the hair. So their hair kind of slicks back like a normal hairline. But then from their temples is like this uh, growth of skin that kind of goes over the hair, which I thought was really interesting look. Yeah. From a distance, they almost kind of sort of look a little bit like a cat, but not. Because they've got ears that kind of go up and don't end at a point, but they're obviously really big. And are, are a little mammal-like, or like cat-like, right. a little bit. Yeah, so as far as the creature designs, I, I thought that was an interesting look. Yeah, and the fact that they're you know so much taller than a human. Yeah, but but not, you know, not like a big hulking monster. I mean, they're very, very thin, and yeah. uh, tall. Right. Reminded me of the Kaminoans from Star Wars Episode Two. Ooh, Kaminoans! I don't know who they are. Uh, they were the ones that created the clone army. Oh, so, those guys. Oh, yeah, they were tall, weren't they? They were. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, let's see. Okay, so we already talked about how could they monitor everything. Um, yeah, okay, so here's my – this is probably my last comment. Okay. Um, in the mess hall, um, I'm pretty sure I see an Andorian sitting there. Uh, if it isn't an Andorian, it's it's a species with antennae. Yeah, so, I thought it was an Andorian. Okay, so uh, Andorians are part of the Federation. So these people are not only – they have not only been grabbing a starship captain 
at least a Starship captain, but they're also grabbing other... I mean, Andorians are members of the Federation, right? Yeah, I right. thought they were. Um, so they are grabbing Federation citizens. This is not the first time. So at the end, Kirk and company just leave, okay? And like, it's like, oh, the last thing they see is a, is, is a Klingon who's unrepentant. So it's like, okay, well, we'll leave him there. And they, right. feel, they feel justified in that. But there's f- at least one Federation citizen there, probably more. Right. Um, hell no. <laughs> no. Uh, the Federation should be actively tapping these guys on the shoulder and saying, give our, give our people back. Right. And uh, it may even come to the point where they stand, send a few starships over to pound them up a bit. Uh, Are you threatening them, Ken? I'm threatening them. Oh, they don't like that. Tough, sh- tough, tough stuff. <laughs> tough poop. Because uh, you don't just go kidnapping Federation citizens, pal. Right. Yeah, I saw the Andorian. I didn't think of him being a Federation member, but but you're right. Um my last comment also has to do with that same panel, so I'm glad you brought it up. Okay. So right in front of the Andorian is a Breen. Oh, we, yeah. Okay. You don't see Breen until uh, ne- uh, Deep Space Nine. Oh, I good point. Cool. With the mask and everything, the helmet yeah. kind of thing, breathing apparatus, whatever. Right. Looks yep. like uh, Princess Leia's uh, – I always thought the Breen looked like Princess Leia's um, bounty hunter outfit at the beginning of Return of the Jedi. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay. And then if you look on that same page at the front of the room, so the, the table closest to the stairs, um, uh-huh. okay. there's, there looks to be a very thin Mugatu. So he has oh, really? So he horn coming up. Uh, he, his back's to us. Uh, but uh, hmm. he's like sitting next to uh, an alien with really long antennae. Well, you think, it, you think that's a Mugatu? I don't the, know. The, the, the one like the dark gray. Okay, one horn, but it looks like he's got some kind of uh, dark gray suit jacket. on or something, yeah, or jacket yeah. or something. I don't yeah. think I don't think Magat. I thought I thought Magatus were kind of uh, light on the clothing, yeah. as in they don't have any. Yeah, I just thought it was funny. Yeah, I like. Them. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 the horn. <laughs> They're probably not the only ones with one horn. Unicorns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where's the unicorn? Uh, anyway, so uh, lots of interesting little uh, aliens, and they're really they're small, so they don't have to put too much detail on them. But still, this must have been an interesting little panel to draw up. Yeah, it was, and throw in some Easter eggs of some species that we may know. I thought that right. was good. First thing I, I spotted was obviously the Gorn. That was like right away. Yeah, I, I just think it's funny Gorn walking around with his tray of food like. Like in high school or whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah, tr- yeah, trying to find a, a place where he could sit down where people don't go, get the heck out of here. Right. right. Gorn. <laughs> Gorny, borny. All right, I know. I had one last thing. Uh, I like that the Klingon looked like classic Taz. Doesn't yeah. have the bumpy head. Right. But the way they drew him and with his hairline, you could kind of almost see the ridges even though they're not really there. Yeah. So I thought it was a, a a good drawing that they didn't show the ridges, but you got a sense that he was uh, like a next generation or movie era Klingon too. So it was yeah, kind of a great or inspired a bit. Of the two. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and, and the Klingon looks good. I like the drawing of the Klingon. He's mad. Yes, there are multiple places where he uh, expresses emotion. And it's pretty good. He is a fighter. So, overall, do you like the artwork on this one? I like the artwork. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was yeah. good. Again, you know, good artwork. But again, the same kind of... Um, you know, people look young. They're not going. They're not going overboard to make anybody look like the original actors, especially Kirk. Uh, I don't think the Kirk here looks almost at all like Shatner. No, um, that's really not what they're going for. And I really don't think anybody looks that. I mean, you can tell it's Kirk, and you can tell it's Spock, uh, but they don't really look like the actors, which is fine. They don't have yeah. to, but with a comic book or cartoon, that's really all you need. Just yeah. Let me know who it is. And I'll, and I'll, as long as it's not too jarring, I'm going to go with you. Exactly. Okay. Right. That's my last comment. All right. So the third book in, uh, the collection called Kakan Ni Shinko, which roughly translates, I did find it to boldly go. Oh, okay, okay. Very fitting name for Oh, wow, that's great. Trek. That's perfect. All right, so the third book is called Communications Breakdown. The story was by Christine Boylan, and the art was by Bettina Kurkowski. And if you remember, she's the one that also did the cover. So the uh, story starts shortly after the original series episode, The Changeling, where now Uhura is still recovering from having her mind wiped in that particular episode. On the bridge, Uhura's backup is a young man who is not very good at his job. He's making mistakes, and everybody is very happy that Uhura will soon be returning to her duties. With that, she arrives along with Nurse Chapel, who's going to be supervising as she returns back to work. Uhura takes over from the young man and helps clear up a communication signal through an Oort cloud. While working on it, she starts to sing to herself. Chapel says that this is good, and Kirk allows her to continue. Soon she's able to clear up the communication, and we hear that it's a distress call from the devastated planet of Malaurin. She also says that there's something else to the message, but she cannot quite identify it. She tells Kirk that she thinks it might be a trap, but she's not able to prove this, and that seems to be the problem. So Kirk has to take the distress call for being the real deal, and they have to head over to that destroyed planet. When Ahura protests, Kirk relieves her of duty until further medical evaluation, even though Dr. McCoy and Nurse Chapel say that she's completely fine. Once they're near the planet and ready to beam down, Ahura jumps on the transporter pad at the very last second and is beamed down along with the assigned away team. On the planet, Kirk is very upset that she did that, but he allows her to stay. The away team search for the distress call when suddenly the Enterprise is attacked from the surface. They speculate that it's just an automated defense from the population that had once lived there. They split up, and Ahura eventually finds the last survivor. And she proves that it was a trap of sorts. It seems that the alien had sent two overlapping messages. One was the distress call that everybody is supposed to hear. But the other one was a secret message to black market dealers to come on by and buy anything from the planet at a heavy discount. He feels like he's entitled to everything on the planet since he's the last living Malaren. Everyone eventually regroups. 
Kirk is impressed that Uhura was able to hear that silent messages, and he apologizes to her. The alien is then taken into custody, and Kirk says the Federation will decide if he's really entitled to everything on the planet or not. The end. Well, Uhura saves the day again. Good. So how did she... This seems like it happened not that long after the whole Changeling episode, right? Right. So if she really did learn how to speak again from scratch, if that's really what happened, how did she do it so damn fast? I I, I know I'm just going with it, but come on, let's be realistic. Uh, because she really has an ear for that kind of stuff. <laughs> okay, I know <laughs> I know she has an ear for language, and the and the headpiece probably helps, but um, or the earpiece. Uh, yeah, I don't. Okay, that's one of those things you guys just got to go with it, right? Because she seems pretty fully functional in this episode, and in fact, she saves the day because she is so darn good at her job, right? Um, which is great. It's just going from. Wiped blank to fully back to, you know, being able to do your job that well. It's that's pretty impressive. Yep. She is good. Okay. No, I, 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 I wasn't ever a big fan of that Nomad episode because I, I thought the whole wiping of somebody's brain was a little silly. And yeah. I think, isn't that also the first episode where Spock mind melds with a machine, which also... Oh, with a machine? Doesn't he yeah. mind meld with Nomad at some point? I think he does. So where Devil in the Dark is the first time he mind melds with an alien, I guess this probably would be the first one that he mind melds with a, with a mechanical contrivance, which is stupid. Right. Well, a lot of people, that's one of their things that they don't like about Star Trek, the motion picture. Oh, he mind melds with V'ger, that's so stupid. And I'm like... Hey. He, there was a precedent to that because he did it in the show, so you can't say he could do it in the show, but he can't do it in the movie. So uh, you can't use that as a reason to not like the motion picture. Yeah, well, there you go. It's, I don't think it makes sense, sense in either instance. True. So, but unless there was some – the I guess that's my point. Well, okay, so I – and my point is I don't think either one makes sense, so <laughs> – I agree. I yeah, agree. Yeah. That's why I never liked that episode. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, Star Trek, especially Taz, is, in retrospect, <laughs> a bit of a mixed bag. But overall, good stuff. Anyway, Galaxy Quest. You mentioned Galaxy Quest earlier. And the Sigourney Weaver character, who was sick of just, like, basically being a receptionist or something, or, you know, operator or whatever. Right. And then she has that great thing. Is like, uh, I don't have much of a job, but God darn it, I'm going to do it. So <laughs> all that was very funny. But I got to say, um, how hard is it to run the comm station? Really? And this kid is just acting frazzled and everything. Right. I mean, Really? Uh, I mean, as long as the Universal Translator's there and working, it's like, how hard is it? You know, a s signals come in, you know, you route it to the captain, you're done. <laughs> I mean, I, I just don't see it being that hard. Right. Um, and, and, of course, they're trying to make it a little harder here because there's, like, two signals going in there. And she had an ear to pick that up, so that that's cool and stuff. But for the most part, 
That kid shouldn't be so frazzled. No, he's he's horrible. No, he's bad. Yeah, so I mean, there uh, who in the changeling who took over after she was incapacitated? Oh, I don't know. Ever, I, I don't know. I don't know if it somebody, came up. Somebody, somebody did, and hopefully they were better at their job than me. <laughs> Uh, agreed. Uh, yeah, I don't remember the details in that. It's been a long time since I've watched that episode. Right. It was not one of those I come back to frequently, proactively. No? No. So the Malorian survivor, mm-hmm. at first when he seemed kind of hot to get with Ahura, like a partner, a business partner, but also probably more, it was right. like, uh, yeah, Ahura's cute and stuff, but it's like, I mean, she's a totally different species. What? And then, then, then it realized, dawned on me, oh, he's the last one. He's going to get lonely mighty quick. Okay, that makes more sense. And he came from a prison. I didn't mention that in the uh, oh, synopsis. synopsis so yeah. he's, been, he's been locked away a while, so he's exactly. already pretty lonely. And as long as they don't have conjugal visits, good point. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. You, you, you took it to an ookie place, but yeah, I guess so. Whoa. Uki place? Yeah, I mean the the whole. Yeah. Well, he's I, I, he comments me, he comments on her legs and stuff. I know having great legs and. He's a, is he a green blooded man? <laughs> Probably because he's very much an alien. Right. But I mean, he's got two arms and two legs and stuff. So, but like everybody does, pretty much in Star Trek. So, uh, so you know, maybe it could work out, but. Right. Uh, Uhura would be quite rich, I would think, if this guy yeah. ends up actually inheriting everything. He's not going to inherit anything. He's a criminal. Well, okay, but he's also supposedly the last Merlurian, which is probably unlikely. Uh, right. I mean, he's probably not the only guy who's off-world. There's probably some on Ryza. There's probably some ambassador on Earth. Yeah. You know, and, so. and this prison, I mean, was this an off-world prison? Or you yeah. went from what? Okay, an off-world prison. You got a whole bunch of other prisoners, right? Right. You would think so. Anyway, well, whatever. Anyway, wait, wait, let's. Yeah, they they don't want you to think too much. That's fine. Mm-hmm. So, did you think it was interesting that the uh, the the planet looked like contemporary? I don't know, like some small town in Tokyo or Japan? Because oh, really? All the street signs and everything are in Japanese. Or what? Oh, maybe Japanese. I, I did not notice the not street sign. Japanese. So oh, I that's, guess that's just that's not Japanese. Language. That's, that's alien language. Cool. Yeah. When I first looked through it, I thought it was Japanese, but now that I'm looking at it, it's it's not. But yeah, but it but it looks. That, what do they call it? Kanji. What what do they call the the lettering system? Well, they have different ones, but okay. But yeah. it does kind of look like a kind of looks like it might be like a pictorial kind of um, right alphabet. Yeah. Yep. No. It. it I don't know. I, I just thought it was funny because it looks like Spock's at like a car dealership. So you see like the cars <laughs> with like the prices on them. And then exactly. Like, like walking by a a little, I don't know, a little a outdoor tea shop? seating area for a Yeah, uh, cafe it's, it's a or cafe something. or something. And, and you can see the, what the specials are on the, the placard. And, right. And, and I like, yeah, I, getting back to Spock's, I like Spock, how he's at the used car lot going, oh. Well, there's Bondo here. Wouldn't take this <laughs> one. So, anyways, I don't know. I, I I think I like this one better than the trial, but um, 
not as good as uh, the first one. Right. Agreed. All right. I don't really have anything else. Neither do I. Yeah, so these weren't bad. See, I mean, it, it was a mixed bag, but, you know, not too bad. It's interesting seeing the manga style again. Um, uh, I liked it overall. Yeah. Good stuff. All right, so uh, next week, episode 258, we will finish off this manga novel with the uh, the last two stories from that. I believe it's called, what are they called again? Uh, Forging Alliances and the Sassine Gate. Okay. Which is written by Diane DeWayne. So she writes a lot of novels, so that's that'll be interesting. And then we'll go back to uh, the last manga book that we haven't read yet, which is the Shinsei Shinsei. Yep. Uh, and the first story there is called Side Effects. Right. And that has six stories in that one. But we're due the first one. Cool. And we'll, we'll worry about the other five later. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So hopefully people are enjoying this, and uh, we'll come back next week to see what we say about uh, the next three stories. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody, on the review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic.com. Second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.